Welcome to Counterintelligence. This is Eric LeVay. Today's guest is Open Vallejo founder Jeffrey King. Thanks to Patreons Dana Berry, Andre Dunka, William Healy, Angela Jackson, Zacharias Z-Score Kaminsky, Sasha Millstone, Craig Pierce, Greg Schneider, and Jason Zimmerman. Jeffrey King, welcome to Counterintelligence. How are you today, man? I'm well. Thanks for having me. It is so great to have you. Uh, Jeffrey, so you're the editor, well, you're the executive editor of uh, Open Vallejo and the founder. And the reason I uh, brought you on today was I wanted to talk about the debut piece uh, written by you, I just first of all, I just want to actually say, just congratulate you. It's it's just an unbelievable piece of investigative journalism. Uh, Vallejo police bend badges to mark fatal shootings. So I just want to thank you for the story, and uh, I just want to. Can you just tell us about it, starting anywhere you want in this story? Sure, and thank you. I I honestly wouldn't believe it myself if I hadn't <laughs> uh, reported it. I mean, it's just such a. Um, such an insidious and uh, disturbing uh, allegation, but um, you know it's also 2,500 words of, of support. So about nine months before the story came out, um, I received a tip that this was happening. Um, Open Vallejo was sort of an experiment that I started uh, last February after the killing of Willie McCoy. He's a 20-year-old young man who fell asleep in his car in a Taco Bell drive-thru and was shot at 55 times uh, as he woke up uh, by police and he was shot 38 times it turns out um, based on these these uh, SB 1421 records and autopsy records that came out recently and so that was a shooting that um, I think disturbed a number of people inside the department and really around the world um, disturbed me and I ended up getting that video out uh, because a city council member had actually said that he saw it, which um, at the time the city was saying it wasn't disclosable, but that's a waiver under the Public Records Act. So it's that shooting that kind of led to Open Play as an experiment, but um, I'd not yet launched the publication. I'm a First Amendment lawyer by training and sort of a, I do policy and I teach a privacy law class. So it was all very new to me. But um, it seemed like a story that needed to be told. And Vallejo is very much a news desert uh, and has been for a long time. It's just far enough from San Francisco. It's just far enough from Sacramento that it really has not received the kind of scrutiny, the kind of oversight, the kind of sunshine uh, that keeps communities and in particular municipal government healthy. Um, and so I started working on this and um, really just sort of started obsessively looking for and eventually making photographs of these badges of these officers um, who would bend one tip for each person that they killed in the line of duty. And to give some context, the Valley Police Department is, it seems, responsible for up to nearly about 10% of all homicides in the city for the last uh, over the last two decades, uh, in 2012, they were responsible for a quarter to a third of all homicides, which was 38 times the national rate. Um, they have the highest rate of police killings of civilians in Northern California and the third highest in the state of California, according to an NBC Bay Area investigation from last year. So you have this combination of this just extraordinary uh, outlier department in terms of both lethal and non-lethal violence. Um, and then it turns out that they're having barbecues and, 
um, bending their badges to mark their kills. It's, it's just something that I, I mean, if it wasn't real, you would just, this, you would think it was a, a Hollywood movie and who knows, maybe this will end up in some movie I hope dealt with appropriately. Cause I, you just, I, you just, I just, I, I feel like almost dumb saying this to you cause this is your story, but I can't believe what I read in your story. Uh, but I guess I shouldn't be surprised, should I? I've reread it several times and I can't believe what I'm rereading. And I wrote it um, <laughs> over a period of time. And, and I really, I mean, I, I, I'm sort of joking, but it's, it's horrifying. Yeah. I mean, this is a small city uh, of about 120,000 people that has a police department that's killed uh, as many people as larger cities, much larger cities. Um, they, they killed about as many people in San Francisco, which is seven and a half times larger. Yeah. And I wanted to, exactly. I want to highlight too, to, for the audience as well. So one thing that I think makes this story interesting is that not just the story itself, but that you are, you yourself are a Vallejo native. And I just, I think that's interesting. Could you, I actually, to, just to back up for a sec, could we talk about just the founding of open Vallejo and what sort of what brought you to uh, decide that this needs, you needed to form a new sort of news organization if you could? Sure. Yeah. Um, so like I said, this is not my background, but I have worked primarily in uh, press freedom and um, sort of free expression and, and journalist protection policy and advocacy for about a decade. Um, and so most of the time I'm just kind of serving journalism other journalists and the free flow of news, um, including working at a major NGO focused on um, protecting journalists outside the United States, including being involved in local society of professional journalists, Freedom of Information Committee. I've written some things. I'm a photojournalist, sort of documentary photographer, but um, you know this is this is relatively new to me. And uh, so around the time of Willie McCoy's death, and in fact just a little bit prior, I had. Um, I actually joined Nextdoor to kind of try and get an angle <laughs> on how racist my neighbors were. Nice. Um, which is pretty good heuristic for that. Um, and it turns out actually Vallejo is pretty great. And nice. somebody asked about um, these two viral incidents involving this officer, David McLaughlin, uh, who assaulted a uh, Marine veteran who was filming from his own porch for filming him, it seems. Um, and then held another man while he was off duty at gunpoint outside of a uh, pizza place uh, in another city. Somebody asked, how much is this costing the city, right? Like, what are they going to do about this guy? And I couldn't answer that, but what's this costing the city? And so I figured I'd spitball that um, based on public records that are already out there and just kind of wrote a response on Nextdoor, um, literally a Nextdoor comment back to uh, another community member and it made its way to Facebook, and then I got this incredibly aggressive email from the city attorney, <laughs> now former city attorney, after we exposed some things right. she did. But uh, that. that was awesome. We'll talk. We'll definitely talk about that maybe uh, uh, on the show later. But sure. Yeah. And so I got this incredibly aggressive email, basically trying to debunk my quote unquote article, which again, I mean, this is a city attorney who is extremely well paid, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year essentially arguing with a guy on the internet, <laughs> but like indirectly by proxy. And this is, this email is copying the entire city leadership 
um, police chief, city manager, the entire city council, their um, executive assistants. I mean, it's just it's just bizarre. And that's kind of when I was like, oh, I guess there's some there there. And as it turns out, Vallejo had lost its municipal insurance, had been forced out of its municipal insurance pool, of which it had been in good standing for 31 years uh, because of all these civil rights settlements. I mean, like $7 million since about 2011. Um, and so that was actually the start. And then Willie McCoy was killed um, the evening that I tried to go talk to a new council member, uh, Hakeem Brown, about all this and found him unresponsive and sort of similarly aggressive. And I'm just like, something, something is going on. This episode of Counterintelligence from Forensic News is brought to you by IT Pro TV. Start or grow your IT career with online IT training from IT Pro TV. And we have a special offer for Counterintelligence from Forensic News listeners, a seven-day free trial and save 30% off all plans. A recent MIT study found that IT occupations have grown by 19.5% between 2004 and 2019. That's more than eight times the growth rate than for other jobs over the past decade. While earnings growth for those with college degrees has somewhat flattened since 2000, earnings have actually grown significantly for individuals working in IT. It's never too late to start a new career in IT or move up the ladder, and IT Pro TV has you covered, from CompTIA and Cisco to EC Council and Microsoft. More than 4,000 hours of on-demand training, engaging hosts present information in a talk show format. They're live every day, and shows go studio to web in 24 hours. Courses are conveniently listed by category, certification, and job role. Stream IT Pro TV courses live and on-demand worldwide via Chromecast, Roku, Apple TV, PC, or their iOS or Android app. Learn IT, pass your certs, and get a great job with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv counter for a seven-day free trial and 30% off all plans. Use promo code counter at checkout. That's itpro.tv counter and use promo code counter at checkout. itpro.tv counter and use promo code counter at checkout to try it free for seven days and save 30% off all plans. And then Willie McCoy dies. Um, so that's kind of the immediate start, but the, the backdrop to it is I grew up here. This is one of the most diverse cities in the entire country. Um, it was a Navy town for, you know, well over a century. The base shut down in 96 and, um, it was always a working class town and that really decimated the economy here. Um, but I grew up here. I went to public schools here. I went to community college near here. I went to college near here. I went to law school near here. And so, um, I just feel a very strong sense of duty and loyalty to this place, um, it's awesome. It's awesome that's so diverse. I feel incredibly fortunate to have grown up here. Um, and it's just, I just started spending more time here and realizing, uh, remembering how amazing this community is, but also realizing just how profoundly messed up the city government uh, was and is. But, you know, that's what we're trying to do something about. Right. When we talk about living in an age where uh, journalism and especially local news is there's so many there's been so many problems and so the disappearance of local news. This this story is sort of a prime example of why why it's so important not just to have like like as great as great the work is done by like the New York Times or the Washington Post. Like no one it only, I was reading your story again. I was just thinking, like, I wonder what's going on right now in America in cities that are about 100, you know, Who's shining a light on cities uh, for all for all the good they have, like Vallejo? Who's there? Who's shining a light on things yeah. like this? It's scary. So that's actually the the broader idea. Um, so Open Vallejo is going to be the first um, and a permanent project of the 501c3 I founded called the Informed California Foundation. 
And the Informed California Foundation, sometimes call it Informed California for short, uh, is going to actually try to observe and distill and kind of universalize for um, other communities kind of what works. So we'll look at what works, we'll look at what doesn't, almost like a software development model or like a public health model um, where we're just kind of, you know, going to look at what we're doing, figure out where we're screwing up, figure out where we're wasting, you know, precious resources, hopefully not very much, and figure out what's incredibly, you know, the most effective um, things that we're doing. And so far, we've actually seen a great deal of impact. Um, and then just try and create trainings, create toolkits, um, maybe a people's J school, uh, journalism school, technical interventions, uh, strategic litigation, not so that we can come into other people's communities and say, you know, we're here to save the day. Um, you know, we're here to clean up your, your corrupt city government. But if you want to start something similar, we've done some of the legwork to lower the barriers to entry, to make it uh, easier so you don't have to reinvent the wheel. We found uh, ways around, I mean, things like journalist security, digital security, um, journalism ethics, uh, you know, just kind of open sourcing the whole model. And so whether you're in Kern County or Compton or Reading or wherever, um, you can kind of pick up these tools and, um, and wield them yourselves. So that's kind of the broader idea is to try and um, facilitate and support other people doing this while still uh, going, you know, hard in the paint in Vallejo. You know, and on that note, I always usually wait till the end, but why not get the plug in now? I mean, how can people support Open Vallejo and, and the work you're doing, Jeffrey? It's so important. Totally. Yeah. So we're T90. Like, we are tiny. Um, we're punching above our, our weight class at the moment. But um, you can go to openvallejo.org, read our stories, share them, you know, maybe consider donating. Um, we also have the Open Vallejo podcast on Spotify and uh, on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud, basically everywhere that... Uh, podcasts are available. Subscribe, rate, like. It's really good. I can say that because it's actually a friend of mine who does yes. 99% of the work. So yes. yeah, um, you know, just read and find out. Because the whole point of this thing, it's it's to make a space, to hold space for people to be able to just participate in local democracy here. People get threats. Uh, people get harassed. People get retaliated for just speaking up at a city council meeting or saying something on Facebook here. Uh, so we want to kind of change that dynamic. It's pretty wild as someone who's gotten his share of, uh, you know, all those typical sort of threats that you get if you're a journalist or whatever they, I mean, there you learn to look at them in a certain way. And you, I was going to say like, you really have, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed that I, I think that just having that law degree kind of gives you, I think a, um, you know, it's it's something really good because then, like for example, you you reference this person on next door, but like a city attorney, and you you ha you know going up against them and in, in your other piece. But then it, the thing is, is like you sort of know the game a little bit in a way that like someone like me, I just I don't have that law degree. Uh, yeah, I tell you, I'm learning a lot about journalism, <laughs> but, but um, yeah, it's helpful, but it's not it's not necessary. That's kind of the whole point of Inform California is you don't need $200,000 worth of law school debt to get good at the Public Records Act, right? Some of it's just using it, um, you know, making sure people are aware of it or the Brown Act uh, on open meetings so that 
what we want to do is we want to make sure that people know and are familiar with and are comfortable with the kind of the levers and fulcrums of democratic self-governance. And so that's going to be transparency tools and transparency processes um, and interventions. And it's also going to be uh, investigative journalism. Yeah. And let me just say, and then we'll talk about the story. But on that note, occasionally, like, I'm sure you get these two, I get messages from people uh, who are interested in like getting involved in journalism. Or, and I just want to say like, the only thing, like I came to this from a totally different background and like entertainment. So all you need is the will to do it uh, some time, an inquisitive mind. And you can learn these things. Like you said, you don't need a degree, frankly, in anything, uh, yeah. in anything. And the world, especially America, needs wherever you are listening to this. Like you, if you, if there's no paper in your town, like you're needed. Your help is needed. Yeah, uh, I completely agree. Yeah. So, you know, getting back to the story, uh, and again, I'm just going to read the title, Vallejo Police, Ben Badges to Mark Fatal Shooting. So the, the shooting of Willie McCoy happened, and then you said you got a tip. Could you... You know, without getting into detail about that, how did that lead to the beginning of the story? Where, how did you? How did that happen? Sure. So I, I received this tip that Vallejo police were doing this uh, from somebody who I believed, um, and they were horrified. I was horrified. Uh, I wouldn't say I was skeptical of the tip, but I certainly needed to see for myself, and so. One of the things I did was I just go on the Vallejo Police Department Facebook page and started downloading <laughs> photographs and look. I mean, it it got pretty absurd. I mean, I've looked at at least I would say over a thousand photographs of Vallejo Police badges. Um, but then I start to learn things, and, and also you know that you're looking at and there's especially early on it's like false positives, right? Um, badges are shiny. Badges, uh, uh, you know, they reflect objects. They reflect light. It's it's very subtle, this thing that they do, um, but it is real. And so I just started looking for visual clues, visual evidence. Uh, but then what I realized I had to do was figure out who all of the shooters are and see if I could map the suspected bends to those shooters and ultimately to shootings. So we built a database of 20 years of Vallejo police shootings, fatal and non-fatal, as well as other uh, fatal incidents in Vallejo. Uh, I believe it's the most comprehensive uh, such database there is, uh, I think certainly in Vallejo. Uh, fatal Encounters is another organization that does a really good job. But uh, once you have the officers and the badge numbers and the person who was shot or killed and the date you can start to look at photographs and go, okay, when was this picture at least published, if not taken? And does that match up with uh, the number of shootings the person had? Um, and so far, 100% it has. Um, but then, of course, from there, we had we developed sourcing um, and confirmed, you know, confirmed everything and confirmed names, um, and went from there. Yeah. I believe you had over 20, I think 20 sources. I mean, it was very well sourced. Uh, now could you tell just, I know one instinct that I always have when I'm onto something is just like, you could just kind of tell the reaction of those who are, you're looking into like immediately they were immediately. You could tell there was something like they were, they were worried, right? More or less. 
yes, although the way that manifested um, was interesting because it, it actually manifested in really strong denials and bravado in a lot of ways. Um, I recall I was, and we actually, I, I focused on proving this up and basically knowing as much as I possibly could before I reached out for comment. This was one of those stories where, you know, it, it was going to get around really quickly. Um, once you start calling people for comments, so we actually had a plan. We had several people calling. Um, we had like a matrix. We prioritized people and we just started calling people's cell phones, um, you know, emailing people, whatever we could find. I recall I was speaking with a, one of Vallejo's most prolific shooters and a uh, really smart guy, um, really lethal guy. And, uh, some shootings that many consider really problematic. And I said, you know, can you tell me? Cause he was like, I can't say anything on the record. Like I can't say anything, you know, if only the relationship between the police and the public was better, you know, that'd be great. But I was like, well, what about the fact that it starts at the four o'clock point on the seven point star? And he just kind of went, huh? right. <laughs> and sort of chuckled. Um, so, you look at enough of these things and you're like, you can tell the pattern. It's not always at the four o'clock star, but it's usually at the four o'clock or the uh, three o'clock point of the star that it starts. And yeah, yeah, it took him aback. That was, I mean, I already knew that it was real, but that I think was one moment that stood out like that. Yeah, it's sort of ironic because I've learned in this line of work, like almost like sometimes it is funny that you sort of have to like hit people like very ironically, like the cops do. Like, so they don't have a time to think about it. Like, you're talking mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden you hit that, you hit him with that question. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It, it very much made me realize like how bad an idea it is to um, wave your Miranda. I mean, like I knew this as a lawyer, <laughs> but like waving your Miranda rights in an interview room. Cause you think you're going to talk your way out of it. I, for sort of the first time in my life, I was on sort of the other side of that. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, Oh, now I realize that anything you say really can be used against you because you know, I just sort of hit him out of the blue with this, and um, these guys thought it had been secret. I mean, this was something that's been going on since at least uh, the last 20 years, but I actually think it's been going on quite a bit longer in Vallejo, and there will be some follow-up reporting um, on that and other aspects of this. Exactly, and uh, yeah, it is. No, you, you do. A friend of mine who's an attorney who at one time was a public uh, defender, he was like, one time he was like, look, I just have this one piece of advice and I wish my clients would follow it, but they didn't a lot of times. He's like, don't talk to the police. Just don't talk to them. Like he said it, the way he said it, the tone in his voice, I almost, it was funny in a way, even though it was sad. Like, just just don't say anything and I'll be able to do my job. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, these folks, I mean, law enforcement folks are smart, you know, yeah. like I, they know how to do their jobs. And um, it's not something that you want to take lightly, given their powers. And I want to also just hone in on, so... Basically, so I understand it, and so the audience understands it. The, what we're talking about is that a, in, a Vallejo police officer, if in the line of duty, uh, kills someone, a fatal shooting, it's not even that group. It's a sub-select group that then they know will keep a secret. And then is that where the badge bending happens, uh, Jeffrey? Yes. So our reporting showed that of the 51 current and former Vallejo police officers who have been involved in a fatal shooting since 2000, which by the way is a lot, once again, um, at least 14 had their badge bent by a colleague afterward. Um, the number could actually be much higher, but the criteria for getting into this group 
And the ritual is um, referred to by at least some senior officers. And there are officers who our sources told us are in the command staff of Vallejo PD currently who are participants in this. I think there's also an interesting uh, conversation to be had about um, who knew, because um, that's the other part of this that I think is sort of unique to this story, uh, from what I can tell. So to get into the this club to participate in the badge of honor ritual, there are two requirements. You kill somebody and you're not likely to snitch. Like, that's it. Um, and so there are officers who most likely uh, have never heard of this until the story came out, is what my sources told me. Um, and also, you know, may have known or may have had an idea, but didn't, would never participate, would be, would be disgusted by it. Can you tell us a little bit about what happens when, like, so there's a literally a badge bending ceremony. I mean, what, what, where does that take place? What happens with that? Yeah. So, um, after somebody, um, is killed by an officer in the line of duty, and if they meet the secondary criteria of they're unlikely to talk, there's often, um, a barbecue or other social gathering. Uh, one of the things that was, uh, mentioned uh, sort of in the background of this reporting was that they'd cook up some tri-tip. Um, and so they have a barbecue or they get drinks and um, then either there or actually at roll call, which is a, uh, an official briefing at the beginning or end of a shift, somebody would come over and take your badge and then bend the very tip. And um, I should probably clarify how it actually works physically. So, up until about 2003, the Vallejo Police Department used um, brass badges. And brass is not super malleable. It's hard to bend. And I've seen bent brass badges, by the way. Um, stay tuned for that. But yes. they're kind of mangled, right? It's not, it's not a clean bend. It's, it's difficult. Um, and these are most likely being done with needle-nose pliers in any event. Mm. Um, the tradition came to Vallejo around 2003. I don't know. I, I can't say whether that is tied to this next thing I'm about to say, but um, it, it sort of comes to Vallejo, comes back to Vallejo around 2003. Mm. And around that same time, the department switches to sterling silver badges uh, like those worn by the Oakland Police Department where the then chief, Robert Nicolini, had been a deputy chief and came to Vallejo in the mid-90s and was here until uh, around 2012. And the sterling silver badge, sterling silver is much softer. And so the effect when you bend it is so much more subtle. Mm. Um, it's really just like the last eighth of an inch of the tip that's bent on a lot of these. It's very, very solid, even in close-up photographs. Mm -hmm. uh, but once you see it, you can't unsee it. And it <laughs> is definitely real. That's very true. And it sure is subtle. I looked at as many photos as I could, and you're, you're right. I, this is something that I'm, I'm sure, well, I know you have more reporting, but we'll, we'll find out has been going on, I, I suspect, uh, quite, quite a long time. Yeah. Uh, and I, I know you, right now we have back to, you said, oh, I believe you said 03, correct? Roughly, yes, but yeah. I think it, it goes back farther. Yeah. I want to ask you something. 
I guess this might be more like a psychological question, but it's just really on my mind. And there may not be an answer to this. You may not even have the answer, but why do you think that they do this? I mean, is it something so simple as a, a frankly, very sick celebration or is there something deeper about taking a human life? Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So it's certainly something that I tried to keep an open mind about while I was reporting this because, um, you could certainly see how a ritual like this uh, could be sort of a mournful ritual or a, um, a solemn ritual around taking a life. Um, and that may be true for some people who have done it, uh, that it's something that the department does as a tradition. You know, the pressure to conform is incredibly strong, uh, particularly within uh, police departments and similar organizations. And, Maybe they had something else in mind than uh, than a celebration of taking a life. Um, I certainly think that that's a possibility. Um, at the same time, it does seem like there are officers, um, maybe for a number of officers, who treated it as if it were sort of a high five. What really concerned um, some of our sources... Uh, other law enforcement folks, uh, what really concerned them was the possibility for incentivizing lethal violence when uh, there were other alternatives. And so if you watch the William McCoy shooting, for example, and honestly, I don't recommend it. It's it's bad. Yeah. Uh, but as a 20-year-old kid, um, he's a young man, but a 20 to me seems sort of like sure. a kid. He falls asleep in his car He's clearly out, um, deep asleep or passed out. He allegedly has a gun in his lap, um, but he's out. He's asleep. And these officers just keep showing up until there's six of them, well, actually five of them, surrounding the car. They've been pointing their service weapons at him from literally inches away. As he's sleeping... For minutes on end, they've got, you know, 400, 500, 600 lumen tactical flashlights. They're turning on and off in his face from eight inches away. And so eventually he starts to wake up. And three and a half seconds later or so, the first round is fired. Um, and I'm sorry, three seconds later, the first round is fired. They start screaming at him. And three and a half seconds after that, he's dead with 38 bullet wounds. I said five officers because the sixth, Ryan McMahon, who had killed an unarmed 33-year-old father of two young children by shooting him in the back in the back of the head on February 13th, 2018, after trying to stop him to lecture him about road safety. And I'm not making this up. This is all coming from uh, post-shooting interviews. You know, I'm not exaggerating at all. Mm -hmm. uh, Ryan McMahon comes running up behind another officer named um, Brian Glick and fires one round, possibly a negligent discharge, I'm not sure, but certainly um, was not safe, uh, fires one round past him toward the car and, according to our sources, earns his second bend in less than a year for that, for running up and potentially nearly shooting another cop in the back I think missing William McCoy, according to the autopsy reports and how I interpret those, um, 
and gets a second bend. So the incentives and, and the William McCoy shooting, you have two officers who are on the force for seven months. You have two who are on for 18 months, one with a little over four years and one with about uh, 12 or 13 years of experience. And so you have these very um, young, very new officers getting into shootings. Um, and that, I think, was the biggest concern internally. Uh, but then, you know, the person who got fired was the whistleblower, Captain mm. John Whitney, uh, who has two master's degrees and led the SWAT team and seems like a genuinely good guy uh, yeah. from what I can tell. And then um, he's the only one who gets in trouble. As as always, right. <laughs> the, the, the American way. Yeah. Uh, I did watch the video. You're right. It is highly disturbing. And yeah, I, I you know, I, if, if someone, I, I wouldn't recommend watching it either. Uh, but uh, if you feel you need to, it's there's a it's on YouTube. What I when I was watching it, I so I, I guess what stood out, what what I noticed in the beginning was just that little that conversation. I think that was what was so highly disturbing. Other than the shooting itself, was the one cop says something like, "If he moves, like I like yeah, like wow." Uh, so I can tell you exactly what he says because sure. I unfortunately watched these videos of huge number of times to get it exactly right in the story. Um, so uh, Officer Anthony Romero Cano is standing at the driver's side door with his 9mm Glock 17 pointed at McCoy, pretty much point blank. Um, Officer Mark Thompson comes up. They have a conversation about pulling McCoy out, who again is asleep. He's deep asleep, if not you know, passed out. Um, pulling him out of the car and then um, two things happen, and and this is the, sort of where the city's broader culpability. It's one small example of the city's broader culpability uh, in all this. The city, when it put out the initial video, it captioned the video, and what I heard very clearly uh, in the video is Anthony Romero Cano saying, "I don't even want to give him a chance." Oh. Okay, I didn't the know that. City captioned it as I don't want to give it a chance. Like the situation, right? Mm. But I've listened to it with headphones, I've listened to it on speakers, I've listened to you know, crappy laptop speakers. <laughs> to me it says I don't want to give him a chance. I think I added a really. I think it it's just I don't want to give him a chance. Mm. Um and just a few minutes later or, or shortly thereafter is when um Mark Thompson, who is the most senior officer on scene, uh, who's you know been involved in a non-fatal shooting prior to that, he tased a guy to death prior to that, or or prior to this incident, um, and has had a, a fairly troubling uh, alleged history at VPD, according to civil rights lawsuits. Um, he says, if he reaches for it, you know what to do. And again, the city miscaptions it and just leaves off the you know what to do part. Right. And I, I mean, maybe you can clarify this. I, 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 I can't see a gun is, I mean, I can't see a gun anywhere there. So that also was, I was confused, uh, from a pers my perspective. The most recent video and, um, so, so open Vallejo requested the outstanding video that had been withheld for a year because I know, um, we wanted to see the gun, um, we found it strange that there wasn't a picture uh, 
of it next to you know an L-shaped ruler and harsh light, uh, sort of a flash photograph, a forensic you know a forensic photograph, a sure. evidence photograph. I mean, you would think that that'll be put out by the department right away. I never saw one. Maybe I missed it. Um, so we requested it. The city said, nope, it's exempt a year later. And we were like, that, no, 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 no. Um, we called the ACLU, who intervened, and there were some back and forth letters. And then the city said that it was releasing uh, these records. And the city actually released a lot, mm-hmm. uh, including crime scene photos. And there does appear to be uh, Smith and Wesson 40 cal um, that was pulled out of the car. Um, Okay, from the from the crime scene photos, but that's the first I'd seen it. Okay, and that uh, beyond that too, that doesn't really. I mean, the the res- that notwithstanding the response, which for people who watch the video is a, uh, it's just to say it was handled poorly. I think is not even that's not the right choice of words, but um, this this is I've never seen anything like this. Yeah. One one of our sources, a law enforcement person um, with significant tactical tactical experience, who's been a long time law enforcement officer, said it looked like an execution to them. Yeah. Um, Paul Butler, who is a former federal prosecutor, wrote in the Guardian that it was more like an ambush than legitimate law enforcement activity. And again, that goes to what were these guys thinking? Were they thinking about getting a bend in their badge? We know that. According to our sources, you know, at least one did uh, actually do that. Um, the the safest thing they all could have done for Willie McCoy and themselves was to create time and distance. It was raining. There weren't that many people out. He's boxed in. There's a cinder block wall on one side of the drive through. There's a you know the actual Taco Bell. He wasn't going anywhere and. They they have an armored vehicle or two. They have um, AR-style rifles with holographic sights. I mean, they could have set up a perimeter and then woken him up. And if he got out of the car, you know, guns blazing, which doesn't seem very likely, then that would be a different story. But instead, they kill him after he reaches up with his right arm, scratches his left shoulder about half a dozen times, still basically asleep, and that's when they start screaming at him. He kind of jolts upright and then starts to duck, and that's when he dies. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly that's exactly what I saw. And I also thought that I know you interviewed, like as you just said, numerous people, uh, department, uh, police officers who were disturbed by it. And I took a lot away from that because I don't imagine that. I mean, I'm sure those folks are pretty pretty conservative, and uh, they they work in that department, and they were disturbed by it. Uh, so I can't imagine. And I think it's it's a really big deal to to cross that blue line anyway. But in a department like this one, people are taking a real risk. And I do want to say, and I say this every time because I think it's important, there are good people in that department. There are good people in the city. Um, but the overall culture of both is one that reminds me of, you know, sort of a RICO organization almost. <laughs> Yeah, I had, and you're right, and thank you for saying that. I, I, I had the same. Well, I, you know, one thing I was thinking about down here in LA, just the problems. The historically, the LA County Sheriff has always had problems mm-hmm. with gangs within the department, and that's what I thought about. Yeah, the LA Times actually came out with a story. I mean, they've been they've been on this for a long time. I mean, props to the LA Times. I remember 
in the process of writing this, I was reading their work going back to like 1999. Um, but I think it was the day after, or it was definitely the same week. Um, they had that big story about the LA, um, SWAT team as well. And then there's been more about the sheriff's department. So it was a, an interesting coincidence and interesting confluence of events. And I was really impressed by their work. Let, yeah. Let me ask you. So once you had assembled, what was the approximate time frame? for when you had done the research where you felt it was time to like start writing, if you could tell us roughly. It took a long time. <laughs> <laughs> it took a long time, but, but here's the, here's the thing. You kind of hit this point of critical mass. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of hoping I can recreate this with some other big stories I'm working on. Um, at first I'm just like looking at Facebook pictures on VPD like a dummy like it, it just it's just sort of ridiculous but that was necessary to build that groundwork and then I kind of realized okay we need to build a database which actually that database not every piece of information in it we're gonna be expanding on it over time but that's if you go to openplayout.org it's there it's a google sheet right you can see all of these incidents laid out you can download the data you can drop into tableau whatever like that's how we're gonna do things so we put that out as well um but that's still not enough. But once you start to have that level of confidence, you're able to have those conversations slowly over time with sources. You have to do right by them. Mm -hmm. Not everybody is going to be somebody who you would necessarily go hang out with. Mm -hmm. um, but you just you just have to be very careful. You have to be true to your word you have to be honest you have to be ethical like it's the only way to do it right and people start to trust you and that's an enormous responsibility um and and eventually you just continue to ask questions you build trust and you build rapport and you're not sugarcoating things you're not doing this for um any specific person but you're respecting uh what it is that they're they're risking and ultimately you get to a point where you've got m multiple people and they're all saying the same thing independently and if things don't match up you're still able to reconcile those and um and then it it flows a lot quicker it, it accelerates in the writing process always just curious like to, i like to talk about it as a writer myself how how long did it take you to really you know have that draft where you were like this is ready to go? I mean from from day one of uh, sitting down to write to the last day. I knew the first line for months. <laughs> I knew that you know they call it the badge of honor because they do, and it's one of those details like the tri tip that they were cooking, uh, even though that's not in the story. It's just one of those details. Is like okay, you know we have gone to a point where we can say this. Um, it's attention getting, but it it's true. That's I think what's so powerful about it. Um, it's this detail. It's it's these details that are in there. Um, so that I mean, yeah, it's a hell of a first line. Well, that's true. I mean, it's like I kept and I kept messing with that. I kept trying to come up with stuff. And I'm like, nope, nope, yeah. no, no, it's this, it's this. Um, so I had that for several months, and then uh, the rest of it, it just mostly got written over about a couple of weeks. Um, and I had a couple of really good editors looking at it and, you know, it was garbage when I first started writing it. Like it's not <laughs> seriously, it's all over the place. It's, um, it, it is very much a process. There's a book, um, I 
got on audio tape, which are audio books, which is, um, uh, oh God, uh, on writing, I believe. Um, but basically the, the gist of it is whatever you have, cut it by half. Um, any big words, make them small, uh, big sentences, make them short, you know, long paragraphs, even, even articles themselves. And, um, it's by William Zinser, uh, who taught, I believe at Yale and taught writing at Yale. But man, if you actually do those things, it, even as painful as it is to kill your darlings, like it actually mm. makes it better. So I just kept doing that, kept honing, 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 whittling it down. On Writing is also the name of Stephen King's uh, memoir slash guide to writing. And that, that is also a great book for anyone who hasn't read it. Yeah. And he's a great writer. Like he's a very, very good writer. Yeah. That's a good oh. one too. Oh man. Yeah. That's one of my favorites. And then, so the day, I guess we already covered when uh, sort of the the response from the department, but I mean, the day when it came out, what was the response that day it drops? What, what happened exactly? <laughs> um, a lot of text messages, <laughs> uh, mostly on signal. Cause that's what I try to use. Um, denials initially by the city. Um, I, I was shocked a little bit that the mayor spoke with me on the record and confirmed a bunch of stuff that really helped. Um, because then you had people like former chief Nicolini saying, this is a figment of someone's imagination. You had Steve Darden, the most lethal police officer of the last 20 years in Vallejo. He's participated in four fatal shootings. And to give listeners context, according to a 2016 Pew Research poll that uh, surveyed something like 7,800 law enforcement officers around the country in a representative survey, the vast majority of police officers never fire their weapon in the line of duty except at the range you know to qualify or in training um i believe that includes firing a weapon even at a dog or like a charging pit bull or something like that um which is actually happens a lot um but you know the records we have are only available because they relate to firearms that were discharged at a person whether they're hit or not. So it's actually a smaller kind of data set, smaller scope. And like 73% of cops in their entire careers, never, no matter where they are on average, never fire their weapon. And in Vallejo, you have 10 officers since 2000 who have been in two or more shootings in a calendar year, not in a 12 month period, in an arbitrary January to December calendar year. Um, and so Steve Darden has had, he's been involved in four fatal shootings. I say involved in because one guy, uh, according to the police, killed himself during a shootout. Um, and another guy, uh, guy named Captain Lee Horton was the lead shooter. Um, if you look at Darden's badge, I see Ben's at the three o'clock and four o'clock positions. So he's sort of a purist, it seems. Um, he wore that badge, by the way, to the swearing in of the department's first ever black police chief uh, since its founding in 1900. I mean, I made photographs of Steve Darden's badge mm. uh, while Steve Darden's in the honor guard and the new chief, Shawnee Williams, is getting sworn in. Um, my understanding is that that um, now Lieutenant Darden, because he got promoted after that, uh, is still on the street being a cop. Oh, uh, I, yeah, I, I sort of feel almost dumb asking this, but what has the, like, like how the, uh, part of my uh, use of a expletive, but how the fuck is that possible? 
Like, <laughs> we're not on broadcast. Uh, I have to try to check myself. Uh, oh, it's fine. We can say whatever. That's Vallejo. Okay. Like, Oakland has town business. Like, this, Vallejo does things the way Vallejo has always done them. Vallejo, so part of, so Vallejo is really interesting, right? Because I said it's, it's just far enough from San Francisco. It's just far enough from Sacramento. It's just poor enough. Um, it's just brown and black enough that people have not treated it with, I think, the respect and dignity that my neighbors deserve. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also a Navy town for well over 100 years, right? And so the downtown of Vallejo, even past this being the case in San Francisco, was kind of a red light district, right? Mm-hmm. And so the issue is not so much with sex workers or there's opium dens or pool halls or whatever, but the graft and the grift that comes with that, the small time petty corruption and nobody is paying attention. It's just the way we've been doing things here the whole time. That's a little hard to dislodge. And so I think that that is part of it. And really I don't see it changing. I'm a civil liberties lawyer by training. I'm all about like if the FBI came in and, you know, I looked on Twitter one day and, and the, windows of city hall were papered over with butchered paper and like uh you know craft paper and they're carrying out bankers boxes uh while wearing ray jackets i'd be like yep okay yeah that makes sense <laughs> and something like that or the a really comprehensive review and criminal investigation so we have the review now by the california department uh california department of justice that i think plus criminal investigations not just into the department but into municipal corruption I think that's going to be required to dislodge and disincentivize some of these things that have been happening for a really long time. I feel like now there's a lot of people, city officials in Vallejo, who probably wake up every day and their first thought is, I really hope that my face isn't on the front of Open Vallejo. Like that's their first thing. <laughs> like, and I think that's amazing. Yeah, me too. I, I mean, I kind of get a kick out of it. Like it's, <laughs> this is very serious work. Don't get me wrong, but it can also be very dispiriting. Sure. But I, I am enjoying, to some degree, the process of um, hopefully being useful to my neighbors, right? That's you what should. it's about, just being useful. Yeah. You should. And you're right. It's serious work. And I, I mean, I'll just be even more blunt. Like, I, I love doing this kind of work. And as serious as it is, like, it's, it's, it's just a great thing. And uh, you got to love what you do dealing with such serious type of material, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Any final thoughts, any or any, uh, I don't know, do you want to give us a, a teaser on upcoming pieces or just anything you want to say we didn't get to yet, Jeffrey? Um, yeah, I, I could maybe give a little bit of a teaser. I mean, I would I'd definitely plug the podcast. It's really good. We just have a new uh, episode that we dropped uh, today, the date of this interview. Um, and then obviously check out the site, maybe donate if you can. Um, uh, we're working on a story that's a follow-up to the badge story that I think is going to hit real hard. Uh, and we're working on some stories about some people inside city hall who maybe shouldn't be inside any city hall, uh, even this one. So I'll have to keep it a little vague, but, uh, those should be coming out relatively soon. Jeffrey King, it's been so great having you on counterintelligence and I'm uh, really looking forward to the next one. Thank you for listening. Follow Forensic News on Twitter at Forensic Newsnet. Counterintelligence is at Intel Pod. My personal account is Eric LeVay. Support Forensic News on Patreon. Subscribe to Counterintelligence everywhere you listen to podcasts. This is Eric LeVay, and this is Counterintelligence.